Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. I've done it. There we go. Matthew chapter 20. And we pick up the reading in verse 17. Matthew writes, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, talking about James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. I mean, you have to give it to James and John's mom. She doesn't want much for her boys, just the two most significant positions in Jesus' uh, millennial kingdom. <laughs> you know, a good Jewish mom, right? Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am uh, baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, uh, as you know, Sunday mornings, if you're visiting, watching online, Sunday mornings we go verse by verse. We've been in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And, uh, you know, we study verse by verse in order to see everything that Jesus did, to hear everything that he taught. We don't want to miss anything. We want God's word to go deep into our hearts, to take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. You know, God promises that his word has an eternal purpose connected to it, that it will accomplish, that purpose will be accomplished in our lives as his word goes forward. And ultimately, the purpose is to shape us, mold us into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're desiring to see accomplished as we study through the gospel of Matthew. We're so very thankful. I hope, I hope you're very thankful that we have the opportunity to build our lives upon the truth of Scripture, the sure word of God, the truth that will outlive the, heaven and the heavens and the earth. Well, in verse 17... Matthew writes, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. 
Now, this is the third time Jesus announces to the disciples uh, what he'll be facing in Jerusalem. But this is the first time that the disciples hear that he's going to be crucified. You know, uh, this event is recorded in three of the four Gospels. And when you piece those Gospel stories together, you come away with the understanding that the disciples, they didn't really get it. They didn't really fully grasp what Jesus was saying, you know, or what it was that he would accomplish there in Jerusalem. Based on Peter's rebuke, the first time Jesus told the disciples of his death, Matthew 16, verse 20, uh, 21, along with Matthew 17, 22, and 23, the second time Jesus tells the disciples uh, what's ahead of him in Jerusalem. And now you add to this the third time, the rest of this passage, the selfish request of James and John after Jesus tells them he's going to be crucified. I mean, talk about bad timing. And you, you, you put all these together and you understand that the disciples, they're just completely oblivious to the reason uh, Jesus came into the world. Sure, you know, they were saddened by the news that he's going to die uh, there in Jerusalem, you know, but they didn't really understand, uh, you know, what was ahead. They were slow to understand the significance of the cross. And sadly, I think that many today, even in the church, uh, are also slow to grasp the suffering that Jesus went through there in Jerusalem. You know, for most people, sure, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that's where it ends for them. They don't understand the depth, the extent uh, of what happened. Their, their understanding is limited, and there is so much more to uh, all of it. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The suffering and shame that Jesus endured on the cross was all-encompassing. You know, it affected every bit of his being. It was a suffering that was endured by heart, mind, body, and soul. He was, he was betrayed by Judas, resulting in a broken heart from the disloyalty of someone that he called a friend. You know, being condemned to death after being falsely accused, you know, Jesus suffered gross injustice, which is something that's, you know, very, very hard for anybody to bear. He was spat upon by the Jews. He was mocked by the Romans, suffering humiliation and a deliberate insult by his creation. You know, he suffered the physical pain of scourging. Few tortures in the world can compare to a Roman scourging. You know, um, it was a method of interrogation where each successive stripe was laid upon uh, the prisoner with greater force if the guilty person didn't confess his crime. Well, Jesus had no crime to confess. Therefore, each stripe was laid upon him with an increasing brutality and violence. And finally, Jesus was crucified, suffering physical pain of what's considered the most excruciating uh, death. Crucifixion was such a horrific and humiliating 
way to die. It was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be put to death by crucifixion. And crucifixion is so awful, so very horrific and humiliating that the gospel writers, they don't actually give us the details of crucifixion. They spare us the awfulness of the crucifixion by saying just simply, then they crucified him. And if that wasn't enough, his substitutionary sacrifice, taken upon himself the sins of the world, taken upon himself your sins, of course, and my sins, right? Resulting in the unspeakable emotional and spiritual pain of separation from the Father, something that Jesus had never experienced before, something that we'll never have to experience because we've placed our faith in him as our Savior. He was wounded for, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He bore our sin and shame. He endured the suffering of the cross because of the joy uh, of being our Lord. That was the joy that was set before him, the joy of being our Lord and bringing us into a right relationship with the Father. After telling his disciples of his approaching death on the cross, Jesus continued saying, verse 19, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus never spoke of his death without mentioning the resurrection. Jesus saw beyond the curtain of suffering to the revelation of glory. He saw the crown beyond the cross. And you know what? He saw the cross not as defeat, but as a pathway to triumph, victory over sin and death. He also saw that there was life after death. And I think that this is an important lesson, a wonderful lesson for each one of us here. You know, frequently, you know, we'll hear uh, people speak about the difficulties and hardships that they're facing. You know, we get our eyes on the struggles and the circumstances, myself included. You know, people say things like, you know, I'm going through such a difficult time. I mean, the, the trial is so dark right now, the one that I'm in. The attack has been so hard, you know. I, I don't know what to do. It's been so long. You know, where's God in all of this? And we have to get our eyes off the circumstances, off the trial, and set our eyes on the joy. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says. You know, God is working in our lives even when we don't see it, right? God is working in and through these struggles we face creating in us a character that's pleasing to him, right? He's preparing us for heaven. And on the other side of these struggles is resurrection glory. When Jesus spoke of the cross, he always ended with the resurrection, right? Let's follow his example and not leave things, you know, with a sour note, a bad note, or with a downer, but speak of God's faithfulness to see us through the trials. If you're going through hard times, facing difficulties this morning, God is going to see you through. He's going to get you to the other side. He's going to bring you out on the other side victorious. And you'll count what comes out of these trials that you're facing right now. You'll count them as blessings to God's glory. Now, 
In the remaining nine verses that we have before us, Jesus tells us how to achieve true greatness in life. And again, this is the second time that Jesus addresses the topic of greatness in the kingdom of heaven with his disciples. And he tells us here how to live during our lifetime on earth, how to live a life. You know, when our life is over, we, how to live a life that, you know, will be esteemed by God and by our fellow man. How to live a life that will be seen by others as uh, being a great life or having lived a life that will see, be seen by others that would make them think of us as great people, right? And I don't know what kind of value you place on something like that. You know, frankly, that's something that I desire to know. Uh, and it's here. You know, in this portion of Scripture we're looking at this morning, Jesus tells us how to achieve a truly great life in just a few verses. Now, how valuable is that to you this morning? You know, you don't have to uh, buy a four or 500-page book and invest a month or two reading it to get some man's idea about how to be great. We get Jesus' instruction right here, right now, on how to live a life that will ultimately be viewed by others as a great life. It will be viewed that way by God and by other men. First, I think we need to understand that greatness is not a bad word for us, right? Greatness is not some kind of terrible or carnal thing uh, for Christians to desire or to seek to obtain, you know, in our walks with Jesus. You know, I think it's important for us to realize that it's something that we should desire as Christians. It's not an unworthy or unspiritual goal to have in life. And I think we can be tempted to think that a desire for greatness, uh, you know, in this life is something that should be avoided because we've seen people, you know, seek greatness in their life for selfish reasons. Uh, But greatness in and of itself and for the right reasons, you know what? It's not a bad thing. Selfish ambition is condemned in Scripture. That's not a good thing. Uh, And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I want us to take note, first of all, that there's no condemnation at all on Jesus' part uh, in this passage. For the desire to be great, notice in verse 26, Jesus tells the disciples, but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant. And again, we want to take notice that Jesus doesn't put down the desire to be first. Verse 27, Jesus tells the disciples, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. You know, I think that one uh, of the problems we have in the body of Christ is a lack of desire to do something great with our lives, a desire to accomplish something great in this world for the kingdom of God. You know, to be a great man or a great woman in this world for the honor and glory of our Lord. I mean, when was the last time you heard a Christian say something like that or to articulate that desire? You know, I want my life to count for eternity. You know, or I want to attempt great things for God while expecting God to do great things in my life. I want to carry out great exploits for the Lord. That's what Daniel said, Daniel 11, I think it's 32. You know, when was the last time you heard someone say, 
I want my life to be spent for the glory of God. Every breath that I breathe, every beat of my heart, every, every ounce of my strength for the glory of my Lord. Seriously, I mean, really. When was the last time you heard a brother or sister say something like that? When was the last time you heard someone say, I want to be somebody who lives a life of greatness for the Lord in this dark and dying world? And again, we can be tempted to think that that person that says that kind of thing, I mean, he's a little egotistical. You know, I mean, uh, we're tempted to see it as a bad thing, a terrible thing. But in actuality, it's not. It's a desire that each and every one of us should have as Christians. Every single one of us as Christians ought to have a heart to be great for the glory of God. We should never fall into the trap of simply settling, you know, uh, for the ordinary. Just happy to squeeze into heaven. Man, I almost didn't make it, but I'm happy to be here, you know. And never give any thought to reward that we'll one day receive. All of us, we all should have a desire to be great and do great things for God. And if that's been lost somewhere uh, along the way, the first thing that this teaching of Jesus should accomplish in our heart is a return to that desire. We need to believe God for great things in our life and through our lives for His glory. You know, we live in a culture today that is increasingly trying to tamp down uh, excellence, right? There's a strong effort in our culture today to make everybody equal so that those who seek to achieve greatness uh, in life are criticized or ridiculed uh, because their efforts and achievements make other people look bad, right? Our culture wants to make everyone equal, you know? and uh, with the goal of keeping everybody in, in, in their place. And when that happens, what happens is you just get this wasteland of mediocrity, right? The result of saying everyone's equal, there's nothing special or worthwhile about you, so just stay in your own lane. You know what? The result of that attitude is the death of something precious in the life of people, right? And the death, and that death should never, ever happen in the life of a Christian. We should seek to be great for the kingdom of God on a daily basis. We should want to be great uh, uh, for the sake of all mankind. We should not be hesitant in the least to express a desire for greatness in this world for the sake of our Savior. And all of us, we should be cheering each other on to live a life of greatness for his kingdom, for his glory, no matter what the cost. You know what? That should be our desire, to see God do great and mighty things in and through our lives for his kingdom. And I think there's an absence of this desire in our culture today for greatness. And sadly, as I said before, I think there's an absence uh, in the church to live a life of greatness in order to see the Lord glorified and magnified and exalted in the lives of people who are unsaved in the world. 
You know, I think our culture has devolved. Uh, and sadly, I, again, I think to some degree, the church also, where greatness is viewed as the number of possessions one uh, has at the time of death. You know, he who dies with the most toys kind of attitudes. You know, he was a great man. He owned a house out there on the lake and he drove an expensive German sports car. Or he was a great man. You know, he made a comfortable living and he had a, a TV in every room. Or he was a great man. I mean, he ate more pasta than anybody I ever knew. You know, uh, nothing wrong with any of those things. Nothing wrong with them at all in and of themselves. But they aren't the hallmarks of greatness. Right? Words like noble, heroic, valiant, courageous, honorable, and great, those are words that are disappearing from uh, our vocabulary. And, you know, how much more the reality represented by those words. We don't use those words anymore because we don't see anything that demands that we use those kinds of words, right? And that's very unfortunate. It would be better if people had a greater concern about living their life, you know, a way that those words had to be used to describe that life. You know, the Bible doesn't condemn ambition. May God give us, I mean, this has been my prayer this, this uh, certainly this week, as I've been looking through this, may God give us ambitious people. May God give us, you know, young men and women, middle-aged men and women, older men and women who wish to be great for the kingdom of God. You know, may God bring people into our midst, men and women who have an ambition to be great for God, right? People of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people with talents and gifts and abilities, people who desire to live on a higher plane and see the Lord glorified, magnified, and exalted in a great way, in and through their lives. My prayer isn't that we would, you know, be a bigger church just for the sake of having more people. You know what my prayer is that we would be a better church, right? Set on fire by the Holy Spirit, seeking to be great for the glory of God. You know, the Bible doesn't condemn ambition. What the Bible condemns is selfish ambition. It's an ambition that gives no thought to God or others, it's completely self-dominated. It's uh, the selfish person is the one, you know, who wants their own way. And they don't care what kind of problems they leave in their wake, you know, or make for other people. They don't care who gets hurt along the way. They don't care who, uh, you know, has to deal with, you know, the residue of their actions. They don't care about the conflicts that they create. They care nothing about division, you know, they cause in the course of getting their way. You know, a selfish person is a miserable person to be around, right? But there's something worse than a selfish person. And that's a selfish person who's ambitious. You know, the person who's just selfish, lacking ambition, the damage that that person will do is pretty much well-contained, right? However, the damage done in life you know, is done, the real damage done in life is done by a person who's terminally selfish and very ambitious. That person is going to do a lot of damage and he's going to hurt a lot of people. 
right? And that's something we're going to see in our passage. Um, even, it, it, it even occurs in spiritual settings. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, 3, saying, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Paul also wrote to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, very carnal, very selfish body of believers. But 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul says, For I fear, lest when I come, I come not finding you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceit, tumults. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists the works of the flesh, and one of the works of the flesh is selfish ambition. You know, it was pride and selfish ambition, the Bible says, you know, that was the sin that Satan committed, uh, resulting in his fall. It was his own selfish ambition to elevate himself above God, above God's will, you know, above the good of man that put him in the place that he's in, right? Isaiah wrote, wrote uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for, and that's a reason word. It can also be translated because. For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. But you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. The five I wills of Satan elevating um, his selfish desire above God, above God's will, above the will uh, of God and the glory of God, even above the good of all mankind. You know, whenever you see selfish ambition exalt itself above God and uh, it expresses itself uh, above other people, no matter what damage it does to them, right? You know that it's demonic in its origin. Well, we also want to take note that our passages, uh, our passage teaches us how not to achieve greatness in this life. Verse 20, 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him uh, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. One wrong way to attempt to become great is how the mother of James and John uh, tried it in this passage. And again, this event is also recorded in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. And Mark's gospel gives us a little bit different insight into the things that are happening here. When Mrs. Zebedee, James and John's mom, comes to Jesus to make the request of him, Mark's gospel would lead us to believe that she was put up to that by her boys, right? And we see here in this passage, they accompany her uh, to present their request to Jesus. Now, it's interesting 
uh, to note, again, I kind of made light of it as we read through the, scrap, the, the scripture, but it's interesting to note that she's attempting to secure the two highest spots in all eternity for her boys. I mean, it just makes me laugh, especially in the light of what Jesus has already promised them in Matthew chapter 19. Remember, earlier Peter uh, came to Jesus and said, hey, we left everything to follow you, Jesus. You know, what's in it for us? And Jesus promised the disciples a reward, right? Uh, there in Matthew 19, he promised that each one of them would sit on a throne, 12 thrones with him and rule the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a promise that was unique to the apostles. So James and John, you know, they leave that conversation with Jesus, right? And they begin to think it through and talk it over and they say to each other, wait a minute, you know, there's 12 thrones that's going to be there. Uh, we're going to be ruling with Jesus. Uh, which of the 12 are going to be the best thrones, right? And it would be the thrones closest to Jesus, the one on his right and the one on his left. So they begin to think how they can get the, those two thrones, you know, for themselves, right? And they decide, hey, let's bring mom into the conversation. Let's get her to go to ask it uh, of Jesus. And, and what Mrs. Zebedee attempts to do to me again, I think it's kind of funny. You know, it's something that maybe your kids have tried to do uh, to you when they were little. And, uh, you know, Mark tells us she, she tries to get Jesus to say yes to her request before she even presents it to him, before she tells him what it is that she wants. And, you know, it's funny to me is none of us would be dumb enough to fall for that. You know, you got a little kid asking you for something. Will you, t will you promise to say yes to whatever I ask you? Oh, yeah, okay. You know, it's a little sad, though, too, to realize that it's James and John that put their mom up to this. Uh, yet, again, it's, it's a little funny at the same time because you might be aware James and John, they had a nickname. Their nickname was the Sons of Thunder. I mean, they wanted to incinerate a whole Samaritan village because they wouldn't receive Jesus for the night. I mean, these guys were the bikers in the, in the group of 12. It made me think... I'm thinking I was thinking about Steve-O, you know? I mean, here they are, here these rough, tough guys, you know, and they want something for Jesus. So what do they do? They get their mommy to go to Jesus to ask, you know, ask him for the, the two thrones in his glory. You know, somebody needs to take their leather jacket away for them for getting their mommy to, to go to Jesus on their behalf. But there's a reason for getting their mom to do it, Right? In that culture, older women were given, you know, special respect and they were uh, given special privilege. And as a result, a mom could get away with asking for something that, you know, was out of the ordinary or even outlandish, you know, and probably get it where a young man would never get away with such a thing or, or uh, you know, with such a request. James and John were probably thinking, you know, there's no way. Jesus can say no to a Jewish mom. Come on. It's impossible. So that's why they send their mom to Jesus instead of going to him themselves. It's 100% pure and unadulterated manipulation, right? And Jesus knows it. He knows that the boys are behind all of this because he addresses them directly in verses 22 and 23. But Jesus answered and said, 
you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, yes, we're able. You know, James and John wanted greatness, but they didn't give much thought to what was required to achieve it. They wanted success with no thought to the sacrifice. You know, and I think that it's proven here when Jesus asked them, you know, if they were able to drink the cup and that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. I don't think they knew, not even in the slightest bit, I don't think they knew uh, what Jesus was even talking about. You know, but if yes is what Jesus needed to hear, then yes, of course, a thousand times yes, we're able. In verse 23, such a precious verse to me, it's so comforting to me because it shows Jesus' kindness and gentleness with his disciples. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't become irritated with them, but with tremendous gentleness, tender mercies, and loving kindness, he tells them, the truth. Verse 23, he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Jesus never doubted James and John, never doubted their resolve to remain loyal to him. You know, and there's a great truth here, you know, uh, that we need to hold on to. Something that, again, I find just comforting. Even when we act foolishly, you know, even when we're disappointed in the way we act, we're disappointed in ourselves. Jesus remains loving and continues to believe in us. He's unchanged. And Jesus continues in verse 23. He says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left um, is not mine to give, but it's for those to, for whom it is prepared by my Father. What we see in verse 20 through 23 is just a shameless power grab. James and John are attempting to deceive Jesus so they can get what they're really after. And it was an attempt to manipulate the situation uh, for their own selfish, self-centered desires. You know, it was a selfish, it was selfish ambition, just pure and simple. Now, what we want to notice is the effect that their selfish ambition had on the other 10 disciples. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You know, when word gets back to the other 10, and listen, word always gets back. It always gets back. But when word got back to the other 10 regarding what James and John were trying to do, you know, they weren't very happy with it, right? You guys got your mom to secretly go to Jesus to do what? I mean, to get the top two spots for yourself? You guys, talk about chutzpah, right? The, the 10 disciples, they get peeved over this. They get angry over this. You know, not only were they trying to manipulate Jesus, but this shows disrespect to the other 10 disciples. And now, if you read the New King James, if you see there, you know, where it says the other 10 were greatly displeased, the King James Version says that they were moved with indignation. But the Greek word, the Greek word used here means extreme anger. And it carries with it the idea of causing pain. 
It's not that the 10 disciples are overly sensitive and they get their feelings hurt, you know, by what James and John did. You know, we can't believe that you two, of all people, could do such a thing. You need to walk away because I just can't. I mean, really, how could you be so hurtful? You know, that's not what, what goes on here. That's not the way I normally whimper and whine at home either, you know. I'm playing it up for you guys. But that's not what it means. That's not what it means to, to uh, be greatly displeased, right? What it means is they're so angry that it physically hurt to be that angry. These guys are overwhelmed with anger. You can probably see steam, you know, pouring out of their ears in regards to what James and John were trying to do. And all of this proves what James later will write uh, in his book, James 3, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. It's not from God. It is earthly. It's of the world. Sensual. It's of the flesh. Demonic. It's of the devil. For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So this selfish ambition of James and John created an immediate and instant division among the disciples. Back in verse 17, the disciples are referred to as the 12. But now here in verse 24, 24, they're the 10 and those two. And that's what selfish ambition does. It divides people. It forces people into uh, different camps. Now, here's the problem, right? Jesus is just a few days, a few weeks away from the cross. God's got a lot invested in these guys. Jesus has invested three and a half years into these guys. And God's plan is turning the whole world right side up through these guys, at least 11 of them, right? And the selfish ambition on part of James and John jeopardizes all of that at this very important, very strategic time in Jesus's ministry, public ministry, and at a very important turning point in the history of the world, right? What, what we're seeing here is what's always produced by selfish ambition, even among God's people. Betrayal, anger, frustration, division, splits within the body of Christ, splits within the church. One of the reasons that this is not the way to achieve greatness is because there's no peace found in this kind of greatness when it's obtained through manipulation, you know, selfishness and power plays, right? And the reason is, if that's the way you've gained greatness through manipulation, through selfish ambition, then it's only a matter of time before someone else comes along and takes your power, you know, through uh, similar devices, right? It's like the gunfighters in the old Western movies, you know? You get this reputation of being the fastest gun in the West, you know, through countless gunfights. And then all of a sudden, you have this now, you have this endless line of guys who want to show down with you to see how fast you really are. They want to make a name for themselves at your expense. So 
Now you have to continually do battle to stay on top, right? And sooner or later, someone faster always comes along. When a person gains greatness this way, you know, there's someone coming up behind you that's more ruthless than you, that's willing to fight dirtier than you. You know, it's more amoral than you. Um, they're willing to do a lot more to get ahead than even you're willing to do. And they'll show you no pity in removing you from a position of greatness that you've wormed your way into. There's never any peace in this kind of greatness because you always have to be watching your back. There's never any peace in this type of greatness, right? So the greatness that you've obtained to, man, it's not even worthy to be called greatness. When a person dies who has obtained greatness through these manipulative, self-serving methods, they'll never be considered great by other people. You know, the position that they hold, uh, you know, may be considered great, but they'll never be viewed or remembered as great. The single greatest enemy and obstacle to obtaining true greatness is selfishness. And to the degree that we're selfish is to the degree that we're not great, right? And it's to the degree that we'll never be considered great by other people, either in this life or uh, in the next. Verse 25, Jesus um, came, uh, called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be, uh, um, shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Well, if Jesus said that the way uh, to achieve greatness is through servanthood, and serving others is a pathway to true greatness, and we've all heard the old saying in the church, the way up is down, you know, it raises a question. What's a servant? You know, I mean, here I am sitting in the room. I'm listening to this guy go on and on. I want to be great. He says that, you know, greatness doesn't come the way James and John tried to be great. But he says greatness is being like a servant. Okay, what does a servant do? What does a servant look like in this culture? A servant is simply one who serves others, right? The greatest definition I've ever heard regarding a servant is a servant is one who lives to make life better for others. Now, that's probably worth writing down. I mean, I'm not judging you. If you don't write it down, maybe you're somebody that, you know, can just hear it one time and, you know, it's locked in there. But a servant is someone who makes life better for other people. It's to look at a person, to look at a situation and ask myself in the context of that situation, what can I do here to make life better for that person? You know, what can I do in this situation that will make this situation better for the people involved? And then do it. For instance, in marriage, someone's married to a husband or a wife, and they're in the middle of a trial. They're in the middle of difficult circumstance. In terms of marriage, it means to stop and to ask myself, what's the single greatest thing I can do right now to make life better for them? Something uh, will come to mind fairly quickly. And then just do that. 
You know? Do that. And doing that, you become a servant in the situation. And all honesty and by way of confession, you know, I, I, I don't like saying it, but it is true. I'm, I, I'm not the servant to Tina that I would like to be. You know, it's something that I need to work on, I know. And I know that our marriage would be so much greater if I was to serve her uh, more diligently. You know, and the same thing is true in business among our coworkers. It works in our families, you know, our greater family among, you know, brothers and sisters, grandma, grandpas, aunts and uncles. It works in our relationships within the, the body of Christ with our fellow servants of the Lord who are seeking to make a difference in this world for Christ. You know, it works in our, with our neighbors and in our neighborhoods, right? If you know or see uh, that your neighbors may be um, facing a difficult situation, you ask yourself, what's something I can do to help make life easier for them? And when we do that, what we've done is taken the position of a servant in their life. Verse 28, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And I want us to notice the first two words in that verse. Just as. Just as. You know what these two words tell us is, if we're wondering what we should do in a particular situation, we'll always be safe by asking ourselves, hey, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, you know what? For me, the whole WWJD thing, you know, I know it's come and gone, you know, and often truths, real deep truths that are often repeated kind of mindlessly, they just become trite, you know. And, it, and it, you know, the whole WWJD thing might be, you know, a hindrance for you uh, to think about what it is that Jesus would do in the situation. But let's get past that, right? Let's think of what Jesus would do or say in a situation and then just imitate him. That's what we want to do as servants. If we do that, if we do what he'd do, you know, we'll make life easier for other people. And if we don't know what it is that he would do, let's discover what he would do from the Bible and then do it in the particular situation. Jesus is and was the greatest servant. He demonstrated for us what a life of a servant should look like and we can never go wrong by saying, I don't really know what to do in this situation, but I'll look to the word of God and discover what Jesus would do, and then that's what I'm going to do. We'll never go wrong doing that. Let's take another look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Jesus says that there's a difference between having power in this world and possessing greatness. True greatness comes with a certain amount of influence in the world. And Jesus says that people in the world that are considered great are those that rule over other people, those that have people serving them, right? And you can look at an organizational chart of any corporation. Basically, it's a pyramid, right? And... Uh, you know, the higher the person is on that pyramid, the more people they have under them, the more people that are serving and work for it, working for them, the more power they have in that corporation. That's how the world operates. That's how the world measures power and greatness. 
But Jesus tells us that a man or woman with great power is not necessarily a great man or woman. Jesus doesn't want us to confuse power and greatness because they're not the same thing. And he further tells us that the world's model is not the model uh, he wants to dominate his kingdom or its advancement because there's uh, a huge difference between power and the influence that comes with true greatness, right? True greatness is the place of influence that people voluntarily give you, right? They choose to give you in their life. You know, a person uh, can have great power while having very little authority or volunteered influence in another person's like, uh, life. Unlike, you know, the world's organizational chart, that pyramid mapping out a person's power, a person's power being directly proportional to the number of people working beneath them, a servant's influence is directly proportional to the number of people they're under, the number of people they're serving, right? The kingdom of God advances under that model. The lower I go and the more people I'm actively serving, the greater my influence and true authority that I have in this world. And you can see it in the corporate world. You know, a department head can have all these employees under them, and whatever they say, whatever they speak, all of those employees obey them for eight hours a day or else. You know, that's the kind of power the world, uh, you know, in the world someone may have. But, you know, what happens when one of those employees has a marital problem or is struggling with raising one of their kids or they get a phone call from the doctor and it's not a very good outcome of the test. And you know, we get those phone calls. You know, you watch and see who those people will turn to, right? You know, most often they won't turn to the person who holds the greatest power over them in life. But what they'll do is they'll more often than not turn to the person who has no authority in the corporation. You know, they turn to that the person who at some point in time has cared for them enough, shown enough concern for them in the past that they served them in some way. And that person, through their service, has gained a position of influence in their life, and they'll turn to them. And you can see it in the church environment. Watch and see who people uh, gravitate to when difficulties come into their life. Uh, you know, and you'll see people turning to those who've loved them enough to serve them in their life. People gravitate to people uh, who they have, been, have a relationship with, which started, you know, at some point in time when a person served them and has been of a help to them. Now, I'm not saying that those people in the corporate world or within the church who have power somehow carnal or, uh, you know, can't have this kind of influence, you can be the CEO of a corporation. You can be the owner of a business. You can be a pastor of a church. And if you're a servant in that role, you can have power as well as authority and influence, right? And that's what you want. You want the authority and influence that comes with servanthood. It's really kind of a foolproof thing that God has set up in all of this to keep his kingdom and his people from becoming corrupt. Because he's designed things in such a way that 
where one's true influence in the church is directly proportional to the degree to which they become a servant to others. And because when a person gains influence among God's people in order to gain that influence, right, they've revealed a servant's heart. And now they're, in the, now they're the safest one to entrust influence to because they won't use it selfishly or against other people. You can trust the servant with this type of authority. You can trust them with power because, you know, uh, they're not uh, selfish, ambitious people. And that's the type of people you can't trust power to. When was the last time you heard you know, a church split happened because of a genuine argument between people in the church arguing over who's going to be the biggest slave. When was the last time you heard of a church split, you know, a split in the leadership of the church because a couple leaders in the church were fighting like cats and dogs to see who gets to clean the toilets after each service. You know what? It doesn't happen. People who have a servant's heart and has a servant's focus, you know, and understand what true authority is, they can be entrusted with power because they're not after power. Their desire is to serve people and make life better for others. And what, whatever authority and power they do possess or gain, you know what? They'll use it towards that end. It's wonderful how God has set these things up. Well, someone might say, oh, what's in it for the servant? It sounds you know, pretty one-sided to me. You know, it's all give, 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 you know. And I mean, I don't want to make it about me, but hey, what about me? You know, the reward for this kind of life is only something that we'll appreciate uh, by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the reward of this kind of life, it may not be physical. You know, the reward of this kind of life may not be material. You may end up in Jerusalem blasphemed by Gentiles face covered with spit, covered with blood, and ultimately be nailed to a cross. Jesus was the ultimate servant who came in, servant who came into the world, not to be served, verse 28 says, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The life of a servant is probably not going to translate into you getting your own TV reality show. You know, you're not going to have a lot of followers on Twitter. You're not going to get a million friend requests on Facebook. The joy and reward of this kind of life comes from knowing that I'm living a life like my Savior lived in this world, right? That I'm, by His grace and by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, being an influence for the kingdom of God in this world, right? And ultimately, at some point in our Christian life, either earlier or late, we come to recognize that that's the only thing that is of any real value that we can possess, right? So to be, you know, rewarded with a Christ-like life, that is our reward. To be uh, like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to be an influence for him in this world. Well, someone else might ask, does it work? I mean, what we're reading about here, you know, it's 2,000 years ago. Jesus had it all figured out then, but what about now? What about the complexity of this modern world, right? And we need to understand nothing's changed. Nothing's new under the sun. You know, it's all the same. It all looks exactly the same. People are people. But someone might say, if I try to live a servant's life out there, you know, I'm going to get used up. 
by people. And we need to recognize that there's a difference between servanthood and servitude. Servanthood is when I voluntarily make myself a servant to others in a situation. To have others put me in a place of servitude through manipulation, through guilt, through pressure, is not what Jesus is talking about. Again, that's just manipulation. And it doesn't do anybody any good. You know, we're not helping them to allow them to manipulate us. But making a choice to, to um, spend my life in the way Jesus spent his life, right? By being a servant to people in each circumstance, you know, I find myself in, well, that does work. That does work. A great example of this is found uh, in Acts chapter 9. You know, so many of you will remember the story of the woman named Dorcas. Now, you think about Acts, right? The book of Acts. 28 chapters, right? It's all we have of the record of the early church. And you can argue that it's probably, you could argue that it's probably the most precious document that we have in the world, right? The early years of church, the body of Christ, the advancement of the gospel through the known world, right? Every sentence, every verse, every bit of it is so valuable. We pour over it uh, in an effort to discover everything we can to see how it applies to our lives today. And yet in that book, God takes a large portion of one chapter and devotes it to a woman named Dorcas who died in the city of Joppa, right? When uh, she, she was a, a woman in that city. Before she died, what did she do? She made uh, garments for widows. Widows in that culture are the lowest of the low on the totem pole, right, in that culture. So she made clothes and she would give them to people in need. And when she died, there was such an outcry of grief and sorrow unbelievable, so much so that they sent to Peter to see if he'd come to Joppa in order to raise her from the dead, which he, he does do. But when you read Acts chapter 9 and you walk into Joppa with Peter, when you walk into this huge crowd of people there, you walk in with, with uh, Peter into this huge crowd of people weeping and mourning over the death of Dorcas, you come to the only conclusion possible, and that is she was a great woman. She had no power in that city, but she had a tremendous influence. You know, and the reaction to her death is something that kings would kill for, right? Herod the Great, you know, he was king over Israel the time that Jesus was born. I mean, he knew when he died, no one would mourn his death. So what did he do? He ordered that all the prominent men in Israel would be put to death the moment that he died. Because he knew if he did that, you know, there'd be some mourning, there'd be some sorrow at the time of his death. Well, when Herod died, thankfully, uh, the order wasn't carried out. But Herod was this guy with all kinds of power, but no influence. And then you compare him to Dorcas, who lived in a, you know, this little city of Joppa. She didn't live in a palace. She just lived in a corner of this little city. No one knew her outside of that city. And yet she had unbelievable influence for the kingdom of God. Dorcas had a place in the hearts of the people of Joppa. She has a place in the book of Acts. Her life is recorded in order to influence us today, right? Because she lived a life of a servant. The greatest or the greater the service, the greater the influence. 
Does anyone here today think that she's in heaven right now regretting, you know, living a life of a servant? You know, I don't think she regrets that at all. You know, knowing that she lived like her master, like Jesus Christ, I bet you that was reward enough for her. But then to be greeted by Jesus when she stepped into eternity, you know what? To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I'll bet you, you know, that was a reward that would make a thousand lifetimes of servanthood worth every minute. It's so important for us to know the way to greatness is through being a servant, not through scheming, not through manipulation, not through power grabs. It doesn't mean you can't get involved in elected office in our town or county or state. You know what? We need godly servants in those positions of influence to influence those, those organizations for righteousness sake, for our Savior's sake. But what it does mean is when we enter into those positions, right, we're to live a life of service so that we can gain a greater influence. The greater the service, the greater the influence. You know, real, influ real influence for the Lord in our homes, our marriages, our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, around town, you know, can only come through being a servant. We need to live our lives in such a way that we make life easier for others. And when we do that, you know what? We'll gain a certain level of influence in their lives, and then they'll be willing to listen to us about Jesus and about the cross. That's the how of greatness. That's the guarantee of servanthood. But everything hinges on whether this lesson will remain in the pages of our Bibles or whether we choose to apply this lesson to our lives and be willing to grow in it, right? This is a wonderful passage. We can study it. We can know it inside out. You know, we can memorize it. We can uh, recite it by heart. But the real question we need to ask ourselves, and I think it's, it's good for us as followers of Jesus to consider these kinds of things. The real question we need to ask ourselves is, who do I serve in that way? You know, how many people in my life do I serve in that way? Right? And I'm sure there's many of us here this morning who are thinking about it, and they could say, you know, it's literally scores of people I'm serving. I, I've served virtually every person in that way. And to that, I say, praise the Lord. Keep up the good work. God is doing a work through you. Praise God. You know, I'm sure that there's others, some of which may be here this morning, who are trying hard to think of, of uh, who I serve in that way. And maybe you get stuck on name number two or three, you know, you can't get past. Well, there's, and there's, and, you know, this passage is like a lab experiment. It just explodes, you know, and uh, does its thing as we're looking at it, as we understand it and commit to it saying, Lord Jesus, I want to go into this world, into the relationships of my own household. You know, I want to learn what being a servant is. I want to be a real influence for your kingdom in this world, Lord. Put a fire in my heart to be a servant for you and your glory, Lord. And Jesus' Jesus promise to us is that this influence will come about as we give ourselves to serving others in his name, right? I know I'm a little long, and I thank you for being patient. We're going to close with this. One of the great things about this passage 
that's very encouraging. And I don't want any of us to leave here uh, this morning thinking, man, I'm a rotten Christian. I don't serve anyone like that. You know? But one of the encouraging things this passage teaches us is that it's never too late to start. Right? We see in this passage James and John. They get off to a, a rocky start in terms of servanthood. But ultimately, they become some of the truest and best servants of God. Because somewhere along the line, you know what? It clicked and it took hold of them, this idea of servanthood. And they entered into the life that Jesus is describing here. And their life became very influential for God and for the kingdom. And the same life is available to each one of us, no matter how far along life we are. Now we know what we're to aim for. And Jesus has told us how to get there. Now, if the worship team will come up now, you know, let's stand and ask the Lord to give us this desire in our heart to be a servant to those we know and come into contact with through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just serving those people that, you know what, we love, but also those people in our lives that are a little bit difficult. If you stand with me and, and pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the gentleness behind your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I can't pray for everybody here. I can pray for myself. They can pray for themselves. Lord, would you work this in me? Would you give me a servant's heart, Lord? I want to serve my wife. I want to serve my kids. I want to serve people I run into. Lord, I, I want to serve those that, not just those that I love, but those that I, I struggle with, those that, you know, are a little bit abrasive, that rub me the wrong way. I want to be a servant to them, Lord, because you were a servant to those people also. You know, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're watching online, you don't know him as your Savior, you know, the first step is to get to know him as your Savior. And that just means to come to him, confess that you've sinned, Confess that your sins separate you from him and ask him to forgive you for your sins. Ask him to come into your life. Tell him you're sorry for the things that you've done and then turn your life over to him, trusting him to use your life for his glory and ask him to make you a servant. Lord, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Would you do it for us? Make us not a bigger church necessarily, but a better church with a heart that's on fire for you, Lord. I ask it in your name. Amen.